Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cubs and Vine for September 27th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Rejoining us this week, welcome back, Catherine Smith. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. Greetings. Yes. And welcome, Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Um, we are going to have on the show in about 20 minutes uh, political consultants J.J. Ames. J.J. is working on a lot of different races around the country, and we're going to talk to him in just a little bit. But until then, we pretty much had a debate about what to start with first. Um, I'm just going to tell you the three things. We're only going to get to one and then maybe to part of a second one uh, before our guest. But um, we have the Supreme Court um, pick we don't know what will happen out of that, and that's something we'll discuss. Uh, we have the debate, the first uh, debate in the series coming up this Tuesday, and we want to preview it. And then the New York Times drops this um, article on Donald Trump's tax returns. That dropped it, – it's, it's so new that not everybody's even prepped for it. So we're going to try to stay away from that um, a little more, although it may filter in because I think it will affect the debate. Um and we're going to start with um, the Supreme Court pick and what have you. Catherine, you didn't get to be with us last week. Um, so first off, I want you to have the space and chance to say your thoughts on the life and work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then from there, we'll uh, conduct the discussion. Catherine? Well, it's a, it's a terrible loss for, um, for the country, um, particularly for uh, progressive uh citizens who have long admired had long admired uh Ginsburg's leadership on so many things and her incredible work on especially on women's equality and um and civil rights and healthcare rights and so it was it was a I, I have to say that this year has been a real body blow with uh the loss of Congressman Lewis C.T. Vivian, Joseph Lowry, and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg, along with 200,000 Americans who lost to COVID. So it's been a real um, sad week for me, honestly. But um, like Congressman Lewis and like Ruth Bader Ginsburg inspired us, we have to just keep working and live out their legacy. So uh, I... I'm ready to get back to work now that I've had a chance to reflect. So thank you for the space to mention it. Yes. Well, um, and obviously this process has moved so fast. That's what we talked about last week. We usually would take a little more time with this, but it pushed into politics immediately, and it kept pushing. Um, Late in the week we kind of had heard that um, it would probably be Amy Coney Barrett and then people started telling more about her. Um, the, the choice was finally uh, made yesterday, the announcement, I should say, and um, we've learned more and more about her. Um, Tim, tell us about what you think about the process thus far, and then any thoughts on what you've heard about her um, record or projection to this point. Well, the process is uh... – Gosh, expedited's not even a strong enough word for this. I mean, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's lying in state while the president's already naming her uh, her replacement. And Lindsey Graham is already talking about starting up hearings in his committee. And uh, he's even set a date for her to be um, confirmed by the Senate in late October, which would just be lightning fast, the fastest that has ever been done. And, 
you know, there's not really anything anybody can do to stop it. And uh, there, there, there we are. Uh, this, this is going to alter the direction, of course, of the court for years. And, uh, you know, the comparisons to what everybody said in 2016 and as to compared to what they're saying now is uh, stunning to, <laughs> yeah. to, to, <laughs> to be short about it. And, uh, you know, her, her politics and, you know, the way she has conducted herself in the court of appeals, I believe the seventh district's where she's at for three years, uh, you know, is all a, a matter of the public record. So I don't think we're going to be getting any surprises, uh, guys, unless we get our first one on November the 10th, the day that uh, the court will hear the Trump administration's arguments for ending the Affordable Care Act. Yes. Well, Catherine, Tim kind of brought us into the, you know, the political issues. Um, there's so many things that they do polling on and they show where the American people are. And then we hear about, you know, the direction that she and maybe a few others want to take the court in that's against that opinion. Um, I'm alluded to it. Uh, the ACA is um, well above water. It's close to 20 percent more popular uh, something like a 54, 56% approval, uh, 34, maybe disapproval, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, on the polling I've seen, you have Roe v. Wade, which when you ask about um, Roe v. Wade, it's pretty clear that people want um, that um, landmark decision to stand. Um, you know, there's a lot of other ones. What do you think um, people that want to try to maybe not stop but slow this process down uh, what's maybe the best tactical um, case law or issue to go on, to focus on? Boy, I don't, I don't know how they, I, you know, I don't know all the, um, as Nancy Pelosi said, all the quivers they have in their, or all the arrows they have in their quiver, but um, it doesn't look to me like there's, I mean, as things stand right now, it seems, you know, one of the things I, they said was that, is is calendaring the interviews and just saying, well, that the senators are too busy. They have a previous appointment, so they can't, um, you know, they can't fit in all the appointments. That sounds like an unlikely, uh, unlikely successful scenario. Um, so I don't know all the tricks that they have up their sleeves, but it doesn't look to me like, uh, I'm not very optimistic about stopping the process uh, unless something, unless there's a hurricane or, you know, a pandemic. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, but I think what we have to, I mean, I think it's important for uh Democrat, for anyone who opposes this appointment to, be outspoken about it and make sure their senators know that. Uh, but the, the chance of stopping it seems seems unlikely to me. And I, yeah, I I agree I that I'm that wrong, seems but... remote. Yeah, and, and as far as the scheduling, I hear what you're saying, and it seems like that you know I won't say could work, but could be a factor. If everybody was going to meet with her, but my understanding is it's just the senators, and, and I don't know if it's just all senators or just the judiciary members, um, but so many of them on the Democratic side have said this process is not legitimate, therefore I'm not going to meet with her. I know Chuck Schumer and um, Kristen Gillibrand have said they won't. I think Dick Durbin said he would. He would be willing to have a socially distanced conversation with her. Um if they – I don't know, like if they said, okay, we're willing to meet with her, and then they they slow paid, played the process and met with her once – one a day for the next, you know, 40-some-odd days, could they stretch it out uh, theoretically? But I think at that point the Republicans would ignore it anyway. But if they're saying we don't want to meet because it's not a legitimate process, that takes that um, quiver away, if you will. Right, Catherine? 
Yeah, I didn't hear that. I heard the uh, opposite. But, but um, yeah. yeah, and, and I don't think yeah. it matters anyway. If, if yeah. the Republicans say, well, you're not going to meet with her, we're going to vote anyway. I, yeah. I mean, I just feel like we don't really have, we as Democrats, don't, the Democratic senators don't, don't really have many, uh, there's not very many possibilities to stop it. But I don't know if they have some, you know, they may have some, uh, uh, you know, bureaucratic or administrative or some kind of strategy that we don't know about because they they haven't been as forthcoming about it. But it doesn't see, it just doesn't seem likely that we'll be able to stop them. And I feel like we need to be honest about that. Yes, um, the Senate is important, and we just don't have control. And usually uh, if there's um, procedural things you can do, constitutional and procedural scholars know about it even before the senators and and get on CNN and MSNBC and and tell it. Um, Tim, let's kind of get into the record some. Um, She's apparently belongs to an organization that they keep talking about her Catholicism, but this organization sounds nothing like any Catholicism I know where um, women mm. take that passage of the Bible, so, you know, women submit or wives submit to your husbands and everything so literally. It seems like if she's a Supreme Court justice that has to make decisions, then if she believes in this group that you have to submit in everything, she'd have to call her husband up on every decision, mm. theoretically, wouldn't she? The small group of people uh, I understand they got 1700 members nationwide although they've got a lot of money and they do things like sponsor uh, schools and stuff like that Um, the the group is called people of praise they are the most some of the most fundamental of of the Catholics most of this group is Catholic although, you know, some Protestants are allowed into the group, too. And uh, they they just basically take every word of the Bible literally, uh, like a fundamentalist would. And, yes, I do suppose that, you know, the part about, you know, wives submitting themselves to their husbands, that they take that, uh, take that one to heart as well, that uh, if woman is going to do something that she would, you know, perhaps need to chat with her husband to make sure it's okay and that sort of thing. Uh, um, I, I don't know how it's played out in some of the rulings that she's had because I'm, I'm looking here at some of her rulings and uh, they, there's some... Uh, there's some interesting reading material here, let me tell you. Uh, yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, that that religious thing has come to the forefront with her. And uh, a lot of her defenders have responded by saying, how dare you attack uh, this woman's religion, blah, blah, blah. Nobody, I don't guess anybody's attacking it, but obviously there are questions about that as there are about everything else, especially if it's going to affect the way she conducts herself on the bench. Well, I mean, a lot of conservatives, you know, point to anybody that's Muslim and say that they want to um, support Sharia law. Well, I mean, that's them doing that same thing in another way, which if somebody wanted to, I think that would be a legitimate issue. Sorry, um, we're dealing with people that, that have two sets of rules, yeah, one for yeah, them I mean, and one for us. Yeah, if somebody wanted to, you know, uh, you know, instill a strict uh, Muslim social code, then that would be an issue that you would discuss, just like this would be. Catherine, theoretically, I mean, if this um, lady believes all of these things, shouldn't her husband, Barrett, be the one being nominated for the Supreme Court and not her, since she has to call him up on every decision she makes? <laughs> well, there's that, but there's there's another troubling thing about this uh, this people of praise. They have um, each person is uh, assigned, I guess, a, a guide or a advisor who within the group who is supposed to 
uh, guide them on all important decisions. I think they're yeah. called an advisor. I, I read on that. It's every man and every single woman. Because once you're married, your guide is your husband, so that goes back to husband oh, okay. Barrett. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize. That. Yeah. So but it goes back to husband Barrett. But, so. But I know there has been. Uh, there has been. Uh, I ha- I've heard rumors. I don't know. I did. I did not read this in a newspaper, but I I heard it from someone who like went to law school with her. That there is also an advisor that she. Um, uh, refers to on certain things. So, in any event, I just think that this uh, organization plays a very large role in her life, and for that reason, I think it uh, deserves some consideration in this discussion. Um, I, I mean, anytime someone is that involved in an organ I think it's legitimate to say, well what is the what is the role of this group and their teachings in your what could the role be in your judicial decisions? I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. Yeah. I mean the Republicans at their convention, Lou Holtz called Joe Biden a Catholic in name only. So they've attacked his religion so right. um they've already crossed that as well. But again but again Two sets of rules, remember. That's right. Right? Oh, yes. Well, let's get into some more. Um, apparently, in some judicial writings, she's not – I mean, people talk about her reversing Roe v. Wade, but she's so staunch in her anti-reproductive uh, rights beliefs. She's against condoms and IUDs and re- just basic before-conception for, uh, um you know, prevention methods. Uh, that that was decided back in the Roosevelt administration, um, a, a lot of these questions. Um, Catherine, I'll, I'll let you ask first, uh, how do, will this play with the American public? Um, well, you know, it's, what is it like about, I think the last poll I saw was 65% of Americans believe that um, – Roe v. Wade should not be overturned, that abortion should be an option for uh, all Americans, all, all, all those who can be pregnant. Um, but, but, but that's, that's Roe v. And, Wade and abortion, which we know, you know the numbers are one but, thing, well, no, let, but let, condoms let me, let and IEDs. Yeah. Let me finish. Okay. That, um, and, and contraception is, um, while there, it's been a point of a lot of contention over the over the over the years it is now a pretty much standard um understanding that contraception should be available um and really should be available under health insurance for nominal or no charge um i mean it's it, it it's uh what's the word uh it it's it's part of almost every woman and every family's um, uh, decision on how they build their family. Um, So I think that's really uh, uh, out there in terms of, you know, the, but it doesn't really like we can talk about all these things, but we don't get to vote on this Supreme court justice. And I don't think the Senate you know, the Senate is almost all old white men, and they don't really have – they don't under – either they don't care or they don't understand how important this is to American women especially. Well, so, I just think it makes I mean, you look I, out I, of we staff. Can, we can say all we want, but they're not going to yeah. – they're not going to listen. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's that's, uh, this – it just makes you look out of staff, and that's part of the framing. Well, right now I want to welcome in our guest for the first time to the Kudzu Vine – Welcome, J.J. Ames. Welcome, J.J. Hey, David. How you doing? Doing good. Well, uh, J.J., go ahead. First time being on the show. Tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, bio and political background. Sure. I'm happy to do that. My, uh, my, my political background started, I guess, the first day that I started law school about a thousand years ago. I uh, immediately huh. took a job. I went to law school in Kansas. 
and I took a, a job uh, working for the, the, the then Kansas State Democratic chairman, uh, a guy named Bob Tilton, now deceased. And Bob, uh, Bob put me to work uh, on having absolutely nothing to do with the law and everything to do with politics. <laughs> so uh, my, first, my first assignment was to work on the campaign of uh, Kansas Congresswoman at that time, Martha Keyes. I worked uh, on uh, Congresswoman Keyes' camp, first campaign and then went to work uh, for Congresswoman Keyes for, for about three years and uh, kind of got the bug, you know. And uh, after that, I ended up as a, uh, a labor policy advisor on the national presidential campaign of uh, then Nebraska Senator Bob Kerry and when, uh, in 90, 1992. And when uh, Senator Kerry dropped out and then transferred over to uh, the campaign of uh, California Governor Jerry Brown, worked with Jerry Brown for uh, the full year that uh, he was campaigning, all the way up uh, through the 1992 convention. And uh, for, for Governor Brown, I was his labor policy advisor, labor liaison, and then I also became uh, his speechwriter. And uh, speechwriting and strategic communications uh, really excited me quite a little bit. So that uh, took me down the road of becoming a general consultant. So since, since 1996, I've been involved in uh, campaigns from county sheriff to uh, lieutenant governor in two states and uh, congressional campaigns uh, across the country. So we've, we've done probably 50, 60 campaigns at this point. And I took a little bit of time off in 2015 to go back to school at uh, George Washington University and get a uh, master's degree in political management where my focus was on uh, uh, data analytics and, and uh, micro-targeting. So right now I'm working on two congressional campaigns and a presidential campaign. <laughs> yes, and going to a university at Illinois Springfield as well. Absolutely, with uh, with two semesters or semester and a half to go, and then on to uh, hopefully uh, Arizona, back to Arizona State to uh, uh, work on the PhD. Yeah, been all over. Well, um, JJ, and also in there, just as you were talking about booking the show, Georgia, since maybe a plurality of our listeners maybe in Georgia, um, tell us a little bit about uh, your work in Georgia as well. I was involved in, in, uh, in politics in Georgia from probably uh, uh, 2008 to about 2007 to about 2012. I uh, actually was a, a bundler for President Obama in 2008 and was heavily involved in, in President Obama's Georgia campaign in, in 2008, and, uh, uh, which was an interesting, interesting situation because right now, uh, in the Biden campaign is is has Georgia as a swing state. Uh, I don't. I'm one of the few that I don't know that I'm I'm quite buying that yet because I remember 2008 when the Obama campaign came in and said uh, uh, we're going to be competitive here. We're going to dump a ton of money in here. The president's going to come down once, maybe twice. Who knows? Three times, maybe. And on about September the 5th, they called me and said we're closing all the offices in Georgia. <laughs> we're taking the money somewhere else. So, um, you know, I, I was heavily involved in trying to organize areas of Georgia that were uh, that were there, but really were were functionally ineffective at the time. And and so we uh, we spent a lot of effort on the ground and in the grassroots side of things. Yes, well, that's interesting to know too. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about a question. Is is I was alluding to you and I are in a class together at uh, Zoom wise because yeah. one of us are in Illinois and. Um, we were discussing this open Supreme Court uh, seat, and something that I had not been anywhere else, and I wanted to expand on it. The, obviously, people know that you know Roe v. Wade may be overturned, the ACA may be overturned, other things. But you mentioned um, gay marriage, um, you know, freedom. Uh, I'm sorry, you cut out a minute for a second, Dave. Yeah, you're cutting out, David. Uncision and the American looking has kind of been made. It's been kind of been made. Um, why did you think that that may be at risk if uh, Amy Coney Barrett or someone like her were to be on the Supreme Court? Now, I, I missed the whole first part of the question, so <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you can give that back to me again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I must, have, I must have cut out. I apologize. Um, Badly. Talking about, you know, Yes, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm somebody's using a blower, and I'm having to move away from that to uh, try to get better to, to get better sound in the background. I like to do 
like I did the Zoom class. Um, let me try again. Um, other day on the show, you may, or on the, our class, you mentioned that if someone like Amy Coney Barrett were to be put on the um, Supreme Court, that the um, uh, the gay marriage may be at risk, and that's something that's not, yeah. uh, I think, been mentioned as much. Why do you think that may be the case? Well, you know, gay marriage in, in, in gay marriage is, is is now the law of the land by virtue of the Supreme Court, the five four Supreme Court decision. But if that were to it, 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 and and some states have some states and prior to that had had gone ahead and legislatively or or in, in some other form or fashion acknowledged uh, gay marriage. Uh, but still, the only reason why gay marriage is, is lawful from coast to coast uh, is because of Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, in, in the 5-4 decision. So, so if, if now if, if there's a 6-3 uh, majority, uh, and even even assuming that that, that Justice Roberts would, uh, would move over and become the, the new Justice Kennedy, uh, a swing vote in the 6-3 is still a 5-4. So it's uh, if there were another case to. Uh, to come up, for example, if if a uh, if a state were if a, if a state that had not, uh, well, if a state like Indiana, for example, that had, had at one point outlawed uh, gay marriage and declared as a state that marriage was was uh, between a man and a woman, if that case were to come back up to the Supreme Court, uh, it would have probably a better chance than overturning Roe because in Roe you've got a 50-year precedent and in, in, in their 40-plus-year precedent, and, and in, uh, in, in the gay marriage situation you really only have a, a decade-long precedent, uh, precedent or less. And, and both uh, Amy Coney Barrett, when she was being confirmed as a, as a, a, just, as a judge of the appellate court, uh, she refused to acknowledge that the precedent was anything that the Supreme Court justices should pay attention to. And so, she, in fact, she went so far as to say in her in her testimony that Brown versus Brown versus Board of Education may not have been decided properly. So so we, so who who knows how far uh, Amy Coney Barrett would take the court back and and when you have people like Clarence Thomas like Alito uh, and and like uh, you know Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the court I mean it's I mean really there's I I see this as the, as the ultimate slippery slope that Republicans keep talking about a slippery slope into socialism this is a slippery slope slippery slope into fascism from a judicial perspective very very quite easily Yes, well, let me just kind of expand on that. Um, that seems like it's something that's been decided, and the American people are at a different place than they were even, say, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. Um, what would that do to the standing of the Republicans, um, or would that make this issue not as settled as, as it is now? Well, it, it certainly could unsettle what the rest of us are presuming is a settled issue. And, and the, you know, the, the odd thing about the Republicans right now is, is you know, they, they, they're really, as we've talked about in, in, in various classes, there really is no Republican Party today. There, 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 there are actually two, maybe even three Republican parties, which is the reason why they can't ever get consensus among themselves on anything. But the dominant uh, the sect within the, those three parties right now is still the Trump section, and all you have to do is, is point to Lindsey Graham to show that. So, I mean, if if the the Republican Party just doesn't seem to care what the people think, as long as they can win a primary in a safe, secure district and, and get reelected, that's really all they care about. And and, and that's a, that's a sad state of affairs, but it's it's all part and parcel of what's taken this country to a point where you know we're. You know, we're one triggering event away from the start of Civil War 2.0, and and those who are willing to acknowledge that uh, are, are 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 scared are scared, and I'm I'm one of them. <laughs> yes, well, I'm going to go ahead and pass this over to Catherine, and then I'll she'll pass it over to Tim. Catherine. Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, hey, thanks, Catherine. I'm actually I'm actually going to ask you another question about the court now that I know that you're a, a labor expert because that's the other thing that um, Amy Coney Barrett ha- doesn't have a very good record on is uh, labor and unions and uh, sure. what are your concerns around that? Well, I, you know, I think that, that it's it's part and parcel of her overall judicial philosophy. I mean, you have to begin from the from the, the original premise that she clerked for Antonin Scalia, and and Antonin Scalia was uh, again three counties to the right of of 
uh, Mussolini in, in, in that case. So, so, and, and, and in fact, the funny, funny thing about Antonin Scalia is that uh, the law school at George Mason University was renamed after his uh, passing as the Antonin Scalia School of Law, and uh, which the professors were so upset there that they now will only refer to it as Ath Law <laughs> for Antonin Scalia School of Law. So the uh, but the point about Amy Coney Barrett and, and unions is that her opinion on unions and her record with 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 organized labor is really just a reflection of of her overall judicial philosophy, uh, which is one of uh, essentially we got ours and the rest of you can go to hell, and and it doesn't yeah. matter whether that's from a from a labor perspective or from a uh, a gay rights perspective or from uh, a uh, an abortion rights perspective. It's it's really just a, a philosophy of it's an elitist entitled philosophy that, that that trickles down into any aspect of any case that would come before the court. Very 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 depressing to hear you say that, but I agree. <laughs> um, on to other things. Um, I wonder what you think about um, if God forbid uh, President Trump were reelected. What do you think that would mean in California? How do you think that, what would the response be there? Um, it's such a large state with such a large economy. Do you think there would be some, any uh, back, back, backlash against that? Like, I, I, had how do you this, think? I had I had this conversation with the, uh, the people that are running the, the, the Cal exit movement. Uh, that, and, and I, and I can tell you that the, you know, California is, is today the, the fourth and a half, almost the fourth largest economy in the world. And, and, and the best example in terms of answer I can give you in terms of answering your question is this. In the 2016 election, 28 and a half million Californians voted the presidential election. Now, they didn't all vote for the same person. But if they did, if all 28 and a half million Californians voted for the same person, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. So we've reached a point where the president of the United States can be elected and lose the popular vote by 20 million votes and, 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 still, and still become the president of the United States. So, so if you're a Californian, uh, you have to ask yourself, it, it, it is entirely possible that you will never, given the Electoral College, it's entirely possible that you will never again cast a vote for a person who was elected to be the president of the United States. So how long should – the fourth largest economy in the world, go in, 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 be involved in a situation where they subsidize some aspect of all 49 other states with the amount of tax revenue that's generated and the size of the GDP in California, and, and yet never have an influence on the election of another president. So, I mean, how, how long should it be before – before the fourth largest economy, fourth and a half largest economy, takes in Oregon and Washington and becomes the fourth largest economy and forms whatever we want to call the, the nation that would be California, Washington, and, and Oregon, uh, and assuming Hawaii would join in. But you know, we, that, that's where we are right now. You, you, have a, you have a situation where, you know, again, Californians have two choices. One is to say um, – we we are going to be based on our contribution to the overall makeup of the, of the United States of America. If we're going to stay here, we need to have some assurances that you're not simply taking from us, redistributing to the rest, and then asking us to simply bend over the table again four years from now and and have have the the, the solid states of the South reelect Donald Trump. You know, it's just not. I think the backlash would be enormous in answer to your question. Uh, it's already there. The Cal exit uh, referendum is on the 2020 ballot. Uh, it, it won't win, of course, and uh, at this point, but uh, it's certainly getting some exposure. And um, you know, it's the, the, the referendum would, would permit the California General Assembly to amend the state's constitution to then uh, permit secession. And I think if you elect, uh, re-elect Donald Trump uh, in come 2022, uh, what won't pass this time may pass the next time. Wow. That's really interesting. Mm. Thank you. So my, my, yeah. other, my next question is more general. Um, since you've been uh, doing this for a long time, Tim and I can totally relate. We've both been around for a long time too. Um, <laughs> how do you think um, 
can't, I mean, David's been around for a long time too, but Tim and I are older. Um, how do you think uh, campaigning, like what are the major uh, differences in campaigning now and in like the mid nineties? Um, how has, <laughs> you know, the early vote, I'm especially interested in early voting. I think that this has been a big change that it's taken a long time, at least in my purview, a long time for campaigns to, and they still aren't uh, quite up to speed, I think, to recognize that people are voting so much earlier that they they can't really wait until those last 10 days like they have in the past. And, 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 as, and, and social media and all these other things. What do you think the major changes are and how do, how are we doing, both as Democrats and in general as campaigning goes, in uh, answering and and reflecting those changes? Well, early voting is is a, a huge change, and, and it's it's actually uh, becoming a a much bigger uh, circumstance than uh, than even it might have earlier been imagined. I mean. You know, as more and more states go to earlier and earlier voting, and, and I say that with, with one caveat, as, as more and more states that tend to be a little bit more progressive in nature go to more and more earlier voting, uh, you're, you're also seeing uh, some of the more Republican-dominated states attempt to uh, restrict early vote or even eliminate early voting. So I think there's this it's all part again of, of this tendency on the part of Democrats to believe that, uh, that, that when more people vote, Democrats win and Republicans believing when more people vote, Democrats win. So, so I, I, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the, in terms of the question about uh, the differences between, uh, between uh, earlier days and today, I, I, certainly the internet has been uh, an enormous change. Early voting has been a big change. You're exactly correct to say that many campaigns by the time they figure out that their get-out-the-vote drive has become less important than their micro-targeting efforts, uh, you know, they, they, they've lost the race. And uh, because uh, you, typically, going back into the late 80s, early 90s, you know, a, a campaign would save 40% of its budget for the last three weeks of the campaign. And, and now if you save 40% of your budget for the last three weeks of the campaign, you, you've lost before you start. So it's it's a it's early voting is is one uh, aspect. Uh, the the internet is another aspect. The, the the availability of big data to campaigns that wasn't necessarily available in in the early in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, which which allows for micro for micro targeting and and for you know, concentrated uh, uh, you know ads and, and and solicitations and what have you. The, the, the proliferation of uh, of internet fundraising. Uh, it, it all goes hand in hand. To, that's and the reason that's that's the reason why after 25 years in the business I went back to school <laughs> because because uh, because data analytics when in my, my first campaign if I had started to talk about data analytics that would put me in a rubber room with a with a funny jacket on me you know uh, because it just it just didn't exist and whereas now it's a, it's an enormous oh, no. part and it was it was uh, city directories and uh, you know index cards. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If, if you were, if you were unless unless you were running a national campaign, you were lucky you got anything other than a, a, a reverse phone directory from your from, right, exactly. from your local Bell telephone. That's right. <laughs> but it, but well, the, thank the, you very the, much. The, the, yeah, the proliferation of the big data is is is, is really very very important today too. Uh, I'm going to send it off to Tim. Tim. Good evening, sir. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, no obviously, obviously, we are in a wild and crazy year for campaigns <laughs> or about anything else. So, naturally, uh, what do I want to talk about? Well, the state where you cut your teeth, the state of Kansas. And I'm going to give away my age right, right off the bat because I actually remember the last time that a Democratic candidate for president won Kansas, and that was Lyndon Johnson. Uh, But now, this very date, 538, I'll give them credit, their compilation polling shows 
that if the election were held today, that Biden would probably only lose Kansas by, oh, between eight and nine points. How is it possible in ruby red Kansas that we are seriously talking about the Democratic candidate for president possibly getting as much as 45% of the vote there? Well, you, 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 have a, you have a Democratic governor, which always helps a little bit. You've got some good Democratic congressional candidates. You've got a good Democratic Senate candidate. Uh, you've got a party that's been you know, rejuvenated and, and energized. Uh, there's a lot of outside money that's coming into Kansas for the local races at this stage, the congressional races at this stage of the game. And, and you know, this is, there's still, to a certain extent, I think there's still a, a Brownback backlash uh, right, right now. Uh-huh. You know, Sam, Brown, Sam Brownback uh, uh, really I mean, damn near bankrupted Kansas uh, and, and, and in the process uh, did bankrupt a, a number of school districts, and, and, and there's, there's still – a number of Kansans that are smarting from that. Uh, also, the the demographic makeup of Kansas has, has, has moderately changed over the course of, of the last uh, 20 years. There's a, a, a substantially larger Hispanic influence in Kansas than, than there ever was. And, and oddly enough, and I, I don't understand this for the life of me, more young Kansans are staying in Kansas. <laughs> Which, and, and with the, with the – with the younger people, uh, there's, a, there's a strong young vote, there's a stronger Hispanic vote, uh, there's a stronger Demo- Democratic influence in, in the politics of the state, even though uh, it will be a really cold day down under if, can- if, if the Democratic Party ever took control of the Kansas State House. But, uh, but I, I think there are just a number of factors that come into play, and it's almost like this perfect storm situation. Um, it, it, and, and we also have Chris Kobach to thank for that, by the way, too. So I might, I might, I might add that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, turned, Chris turned a lot of Republicans into Democrats in Kansas over the last six or seven years. And, and, and as long as he continues to run for everything from dog catcher to you know, president, uh, I think that, uh, that that will probably continue. Okay. Now, if I'm looking at a map of Kansas, you mentioned a growing Hispanic population and uh, the growth of young people staying at home. Am I looking way over at the eastern side of Kansas toward Kansas, the Kansas City area to find that population, or are they scattered out somewhere else? I, I would say you're, you're correct to say that there's a, a cluster in the Kansas City area. There's also a uh-huh. cluster in the, up, in the north, up in the northeast corner up in the Leavenworth area, and there's also uh-huh. a, a cluster in, in, the, in the Wichita area as well, down in Central County. Wichita, huh? Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Okay, now you mentioned you mentioned your your Senate candidate, of course, running for the open seat out there, Barbara Bowyer, um, and and she is the Democratic nominee. On Friday, President Obama endorsed several candidates for various offices in Kansas, but uh, Bowyer was not among them. Any, any idea why that was? Well, I, I, my my suspicion is that, that she is a converted Republican and a very recent converted Republican, and, and uh-huh. I think that is that is probably that probably has more to do with it than, than anything else. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Also, also if, it, if the race were, I think if the race were were deemed to be closer than I believe it's going to be. Uh, he, he may have stepped in, but you know, if you're if you're a, a former president, you don't like to endorse somebody that you know in advance is going to get the hell beat out of him. And and I don't know that it's going to be that bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know that it's going to be that bad for Barbara. But but I think when you combine the fact that she's a, she's she's not a, a, a convert 20 years ago, she's a convert 20 months ago. And and, uh-huh. and at this point, and um, I, I think that that's that probably has more to do with it than anything else. Okay. Now, of course, uh, one of one of his endorsements came to the one incumbent Democratic U.S. House member, Sharice Davids, uh, mm-hmm. who was one of those folks who came from out of nowhere and shocked the world in the third district um, in 2018 when we took over the House, and uh, she defeated a four-term uh, congressman. Uh, Will she hold this year? I, I think so because I think that the the, the general tendency in, in 2020 is going to be for uh, large turnout uh, just about everywhere, and I and I think that in 
in, in a case in Sharif, in a case of Sharif Davis, I think that uh, she's gotten some really good exposure uh, since her election uh, locally, and, and I think that she'll I think that she'll produce her, her her people will get out, and I think she will be reelected. We're we're hoping also to uh, I'm working the Kansas two race right now with uh, Michelle uh-huh. Delisa, and 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 I'm uh-huh. hoping that. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, we can find lightning in, a, lightning in a bottle there. I worked, I worked the Paul Davis race in the same district uh, in, in 2018, and we were we were on target. We felt as though we had exceptional um, out, out of state money that came in, uh, and, and we, we were in we were in that race until a couple of weeks before the, the before the election when uh, Steve Watkins' father uh, created a super PAC with about eight hundred thousand dollars, and he's now under. Uh, under investigation by the FEC for the manner in which that pack was created, uh, and Steve Watkins, as you know himself, uh, not running for re-election, lost his his, uh, his his primary election uh, uh, bid for re-election uh, because uh, he was indicted two weeks before the primary for voter fraud. So, uh, so we lost to a voter, a voter fraud whose father's under investigation, and now we hope to go back in and turn that seat this time. So. <laughs> All right. Now I got one more question um, yep. about the average Kansan voter. Um, I mean, and I want to compare them to a couple of neighborhood states: Oklahoma to your south, and Missouri to your east. Is the average Kansas voter more like the voters in Missouri or Oklahoma right now? Wow, that's that's a uh, that's really a an interesting question uh, from this perspective, Tim. Uh, you know, Oklahoma is just a um, Oklahoma is uh, Oklahoma. Let's put it that way. It's, it's a <laughs> you know. I, I mean, and I, when I get when I get through, uh, when I have to get through Oklahoma from time to time. I I just try to get through there real fast. That's you know that's, that's, that's the way it is. But but you know the, the you can find places in Oklahoma where you can turn a corner and you're in. You're in 1952, and and it's and and, and Missouri is is maybe a little bit less like that, but I think that the the difference in Missouri is that you you in in Missouri you have such an over see, it, it, in Oklahoma you've got the cowboy mentality, and and uh-huh. in, in Missouri and in Missouri primarily you've got the the Southern Baptist mentality. I mean, the, the, you get into uh, Southwest Missouri, you get into Southeast Missouri. And and uh, you know it used to be in New York City the expression is there's a Starbucks on every corner and on some corners there's four uh, in in those sections of Missouri uh, you know, there's a church on every corner and some corners there's four so I mean it's if you're <laughs> there's the, the the influence I don't know how Claire McCaskill ever you know became you know a, a U.S. senator because uh, it, it's in, in Missouri much much harder uh, to to take. Um, uh, progressive social positions and and have any kind of a national career, but that's or you know even a local local career at that point. I mean, it's, I, I find Missouri to be significantly more conservative in many ways than Oklahoma because Oklahoma is more wild wild west, and that's kind of there's, yes, there's an element of of conservatism there and 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 Second Amendment uh, influence, but there's but there's also this kind of lazy fair kind of free and easy way that you find it in, in the wild, wild west that you don't necessarily find in the southern baptist more southern baptist oriented state of missouri and in kansas i think kansas has taken some of oklahoma and some of and some of missouri and then said well you know there's good parts there and there's good parts there now we're going to try to uh, use this as a ball of clay and and, and, and make something better out of it so uh, kansas kansas is, be, is rapidly becoming more progressive than either of its neighboring states Oh, excellent analysis. I appreciate it. And with that, I am going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Well, J.J., uh, we thank you for being on the show. Hey, before you leave, Tim and Catherine aren't going to believe this, but on our class, our Zoom calls every week where we talk about politics, there's in the mid-20s, about 25, 27 people in the class. Would you say that I am one of the one or two most progressive liberal people on the Zoom call every week? Oh, I, I would think. In fact, if, if if I didn't know you, David, and somebody was just asking me this, you know, independently, I'd say you're about three counties to the left of Bernie Sanders. 
it's a wild Zoom call. Uh, uh, sometimes I'm the moderate on the show at times. Uh, so it's just my midweek is different than my weekend, if you will. <laughs> yes. Well, well, and uh, AJ, thanks to, for that. I was just saying, I used to advertise myself as three counties left of Bernie Sanders until I met you, David. Now you, you're you're just a little bit farther out there than I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just vocal. That one fellow, I won't mention his name. He, he got to me last week. Um, well, JJ, if somebody wanted to uh, read your political writings or follow your tweets or anything on social media, if you want to share it, feel free now. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm going to be completely candid. I, uh, because I work with a number of, of national politicians whose careers could be impacted by my tweets, I, I only tweet under pseudonyms. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I don't, and I don't, I don't, I don't use Facebook because I, you know, I, I want my candidates, my my clients, I want my candidates to be elected based upon their merits, not tossed out of office because of. My stupidity. So uh, I, I do. I do tend to to have uh, uh, rather strong opinions on Twitter, but fortunately, I'm the only one who knows where they're coming from. So <laughs> if, anybody, Sorry. If, if anybody, if anybody ever did uh, did want to get in touch with me, uh, you, you know, in, in any way, my, I, you know, and I I did it years and years ago. I, I did do a, a a political blog, which I've gotten away from now that I I just don't have time for it. But uh, but if anybody wanted to get in touch with me, you know, my my uh, email is is real easy. It's my university email. It's h uh, ames three h a m e s three at u i s dot edu, and uh, I'm always happy to answer questions. I, I am the, the the head of a, a, a boutique consulting agency, which is my the title of my company's name is the James Gang. And that's for Jay Ames, uh, so it's the, with the James Gang, and it's James Gang Strategies. And so, if anybody wants to uh, get in touch uh, for any reason whatsoever, I'm always happy to uh, to oblige, and, and I respond to most uh, things that come in. And again, the email is hames3 at uh, uis.edu. Yes, sir. Well, thanks again, JJ, for coming on. Hey, you guys so have a great much. night. Yep. Thank you, thank you, thank you sir. You. Hey, and get out and vote, you know, and if you have to vote twice, you know, Donald Trump says says it's okay to vote twice, so go ahead. (laughs) You guys have a great night now. Thank you. All right. Yes. J.J. Ames, political consultant really all over the country, uh, focused a little bit in the central of the country right now while we spent so much time with Kansas uh, this week, but that is an intriguing state, but in our last Roughly 10 minutes. Uh, Let's get back to Georgia. This U.S. Senate special election is so intriguing. 21 candidates for starters, and then so many wrinkles in the way it was structured. Um, I guess this past week, um, Kelly Loeffler made news uh, saying that she's to the right of Attila the Hun, and then Doug. Against her, I guess she was asking for that. But the polling shows that really Doug Collins is not making uh, much progress, is he, Catherine? No, he's not. He's not. A, he must not have very much money because he's not, not on TV no. all that much. Yeah. No, not to do a Till of the Hun comparison commercials. Um, <laughs> Kath, I mean, Tim, what was your thought when you saw the Till of the Hun ad that? Uh, Kelly Loeffler put together. You, you honestly, I thought it was one of the worst U.S. Senate ads that I had ever seen in my life. It's more like some kind of parody ad that some candidate running for some local office that just wants to be noticed by the voters would make that nobody would take seriously, but everyone would remember the ad. And 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 clap good old Joe on the back down at the hardware store who did it and say that's great I'm on vote for you buddy uh, I I do I do not know what the ad people were thinking uh, on on this one that that was really a sad ad it it, it was not a good ad at all yeah I'm there's sorry. a guest I'd love to ask about I that Fred. The Go first ahead. time I saw it, I thought it I thought it was negative a negative ad against her. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, 
right? I mean, I I thought it was like a, a and and then I was I I was really quite confused by it at first. I had to like wait till it came back on and to see it again, and then of course there was all the uh, word about it. But yeah, I thought it was terrible. Yeah, I wonder at what point do Republicans see an ad like this and go, wait. Do we want to be the right of a tool of the hun? You know, it's some self-reflection. Is that a good yeah, thing to be that far right? Dude, dude, um, they had wonder. a guy sitting. They had a guy sitting there. What was he doing? Yeah, he was supposed I mean, to be a tool no, of the hun. Please, no, no, please, uh, no, no, just no. Yeah, I, and, and I would like to ask uh, if Fred Davis comes back on the show sometime soon. What does he think about that? I think he'd be an interesting perspective on that actual ad. Well, that's not all to this race. Um, We see that Kelly Loeffler's in the mid to low 20s. Doug Collins is in the low 20s. Raphael Warnock is in the low 20s. Sometimes he'll be ahead of Doug Collins. Sometimes he'll be even with Doug Collins. Maybe he's still even a poll or two behind Doug Collins. And as we know... These polls, they're probably asking about five or six candidates on the call. They're not reading that list of 21 people in which Raphael Warnock appears as candidate 20 um, in that list. Um, Catherine, how concerned are you that this runoff could be between uh, Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins? I I was very concerned about that, but I had a conversation – with a friend of mine who lives in New Orleans, you know, Louisiana has these jungle primaries all the time now. And um, my friend was, was surprised to say that she used to be concerned about this too, but that in almost every case, the primaries end up, the, the, the runoff ends up being between a Democrat and a Republican, that um, it just is the way it works. Um, So she was not as concerned about it. She used to live in Georgia. As I I am, so I'm a little less concerned now, but but it's definitely a concern, especially with so many yeah. all these other candidates. You know, you you know you're gonna you're likely gonna have some people who vote for, you know, somebody's gonna vote for all of them, right? Their mother, their you know, family, and all that. Their friends are gonna vote for their friends, oh. likely, and uh, so. Oh. And then, well, yeah, yeah, I'm concerned about it, but less than I was a week ago. Catherine, apologize for laughing. When you said all of them, I could picture someone checking all 21 names. They're going to vote for all of them, and they're about to be. But I know what you mean. But I will say this. Remember a few years, I guess it was two years ago, um, was it Cindy Zeldin? She was like the, the, you know, the people in the nose choice for um, insurance commissioner, and she didn't win the primary. And somebody nobody had ever heard of won the nomination because here's the thing. All the people in the know are not all the people. And I'm looking right. at these names, and, and some of these names, you know, they just look like average folks. I really need to pull up political wire. But I could see somebody. There's one, I believe she was Lithonia Mayor. Her last name's a J, I want to say. Um, I really should have pulled all this up ahead of time, but I could see 10, 7, 4% of the people just stopping there and going, huh, that sounds like a credible Democratic candidate, and her getting some outsized portion. I think it's going to be more of that than it is, say, Matthew Lieberman getting more vote total than people think that he would normally get. Tim, what's your take? Tim. Tim. Okay, he's on the board. Let's let's refresh the board. Well, and Catherine, as we wait for Tim to jump on in, and I'm going to make sure something didn't cap on the muting. Uh, the candidate I'm talking about is Deborah Jackson. There's a Jamisa James, also a Democrat. Then a, T- a Tamra Johnson, Sheely. Then Matt Lieberman. Then Joy Felicia uh, Slade. We've got a bunch of Democrats in a row alphabetically. I guess Slade would actually come a lot later. Well, maybe not in this particular one. Um, I'm not sure what's going on with Tim and the board. Tim, I apologize to you if you can hear us and we can't hear you. Um, But, you know, I could see these candidates each getting, say, 5% of the vote 
and that may be all that's needed to end up having a Collins Loeffler uh, runoff. What do you think, Catherine? Well, you could say the same thing about the Republicans too. Well, there's not as many. I mean, there there are some. There's that Al Bartel who runs, you know, every time there's an election. Um, I thought there were and about seven Republicans. Yeah, there's Wayne Johnson. There's a there's a um, a lady uh, Kia something. Uh, she's got an interesting little deal going on her website. Um, I'm trying to find her. Uh, Candice Taylor, and it's K I S S, and she kind of plays into the the K I S K I S S thing. It's kind of odd um, that someone would play it up. The fact that their name has the word "kiss" in it, and they're a you know political candidate, but just some strange <laughs> stuff. Um, so I mean, in theoretically, yes, they could also get um, an outsized vote share. The we get, but I just kind of think the Republicans may go into this a little more organized, knowing that it's a binary choice for the most part between those two. Uh, that could be true. Um, I guess the ones I'm worried about are Carver. And Lieberman, because I think they have the – of name recognition, they probably have the most besides uh, but that, Warnock. But, um, that's the thing. I but, actually like Ed Tarver. Um, I, I, I mean I, could, I think Ed Tarver is a very, very qualified candidate, but um, you know, I don't know that anybody besides the insiders know him either. And He's going to be way deep down there with Raphael Warnock anyway. Um, let me uh, switch over to Tim. I figured out something going on with the board. I had to get on like three computers, um, but I don't think it was my computer's fault. It was something else. Uh, Tim, back with us. Yeah, yeah. I never left. Okay. Actually, I, well, I don't. I don't know. I don't what know was what happening. happened. Well, it, it was screw, something was screwy, and I got you back on. And now, give us your take on the Democratic side of this slate. You probably heard a lot of what we were saying then. Yeah, I heard it all. As a matter of fact. Well, we got we got eight Democrats, and they are splitting the vote. Um, I, I'm concerned about it a little bit, but I do believe that Warnock has probably been gaining at the expense of Lieberman, who has lost uh, had about a three point erosion lately, down to around 11 percent. Um, the endorsement by President Obama has to help Warnock. Immensely uh, in this race, it, it it really gets him on the map. People are looking at him now. Um, the thing is, uh, as of yesterday, twenty two thousand people had already voted, and you just got to wonder who they have voted for. If most of them are Democrats, are are they? Is it like you said, David? And 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 the alphabetical thing is going to be just this terrible problem. Uh, are eight Democrats splitting the vote a little bit too much, and Collins and Loeffler are going to get in um, because they're spending their time trying to argue about who's the most pro-Trump. You, we thought yeah. they, one of them would knock each other out, and, and really it hadn't quite happened, has it? Well, I'll tell you this. I think the people that sit down with their ballot early and sit in their home and take the time – I think those are going to be more informed, informed voters, and they're going to vote yeah. for you know on some logic. Either they're going to vote for Raphael Warnock, or they're going to vote for one of these other candidates for a reason. And, and there's a difference there. Um, and I mm-hmm. think Raphael Warnock does pretty good with those voters. It, it's just the, the quicker voters. And this is if it's close. Now, one thing I think what's going to help to me him just as much. One, he's been on TV some. You, I saw his ad right. um, at least, run at least once during the Falcons football game. Um, but he um, also was attacked uh, this week by Kelly Loeffler in a campaign ad. And I have to think that um, somewhere in her polling so, or somewhere in her strategy, she thinks that for her it would be better to face Raphael Warnock in a one-on-one than facing Doug Collins in a one-on-one runoff. Um, so if she begins to attack him and possibly Collins down the road, although I think you think he he needs to spend his money on Loeffler. But if she starts attacking Raphael Warnock, she's going to lift him up to where he then makes the runoff. As strange as that sounds, you usually don't want to get attacked. What do you think about that theory, Catherine? That's an interesting theory. I think she's 
if her um, advisors are telling her that, I think that's true. I think she has a better chance of winning against Warnock than against Collins in a runoff. Yeah, and it was real interesting because earlier in the year, uh, Doug Collins offered to do a series of debates with Raphael Warnock, um, kind of circumventing um, Kelly Loeffler. It's kind of like they're using Raphael Warnock in a way to, to, you know, hey, we'll elevate him, cutting the other one out of the deal, um, which in this phase of the game is good for him because he's got to get to that next phase. Um, whatever that may look like. And as a Georgia Democrat for many, many of these runoffs, I don't relish a runoff with nothing on the ballot. But sometimes you just got to be in the game to play just to see what happens. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank J.J. Ames for coming on the show. And next week we're going to have a frequent guest of the Kudzu Vine on. Uh, Robin Biro will be our guest. Oh, great. Until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.